Welcome to Building a Greener Idaho, your source for insightful conversations with diverse voices at the intersection of people, profit, and planet. So welcome to the Crystal Ballroom. My name is Catherine Kirk. I am the Executive Director of the Idaho Heritage Trust, a statewide nonprofit organization that believes in our connection with the past. Today we are dining together in what was once known as the Crystal Lounge of the historic Hotel Boise. Hotel Boise was designed by Frank Hummel while he was living in Portland, Oregon, and constructed in 1930. Located near the state capitol building, it was a popular destination for visiting political officials and celebrities. To quote the Idaho Architecture Project by Preservation Idaho, it was an opulent structure reminiscent of the Roaring Twenties Art Deco style. With 11 stories and an octagonal penthouse, the Hotel Boise was the city's first skyscraper, dwarfed only by the State House Dome. It was a magnanimous feat of man's imagination of that time. Continuing with imagination today, our city of Boise, the capital of Idaho, is transforming into a beautiful downtown and cultural center. It is a city to be celebrated and enjoyed. Please join me in a warm welcome of appreciation for Mayor Dave Beter. Well, thank you so much, Catherine. Before I introduce uh, your keynote speaker, I, I, again, I just want to uh, say just how, how glad I am that you're all here, how important this subject is. Uh, and what a challenge, uh, because you have to you have to find the sweet spot, and that's a lot of what we do is just finding that sweet spot between all these different interests, between economic development, between uh, you know good uh, architecture and good placemaking, uh, to be practical and understand what is going to make the most difference, what can we do, what even though we'd like to do, uh, maybe we can't take that on. Uh, there's all these things swirling around. Uh, the subjects you deal with. It's my pleasure to introduce your keynote speaker, Donovan Ripkema. He's a Washington, D.C.-based real estate and economic development consultant runs a firm at the nexus of historic preservation and economics. He also teaches a course on the economics of historic preservation at the University of Pennsylvania. Please join me in welcoming Donovan D. Ripkema. Thank you, Mayor. That was very kind. Most of it untrue, but doesn't mean it was not appreciated. Uh, I, the last time I was in Boise was uh, you know, nine years ago, and it really is a, a city that has changed itself in a positive fashion, uh, and the stuff that's been added um, it really is an is important contribution, and 50 years from now, you, the equivalent of this room full of people will be here saying, those are the buildings we have to save. I, I, I'm sorry to give this analogy, but I haven't come up with another one. I grew up in western South Dakota, uh, and my dad was in part in the cattle business, and in the cattle business, if you're, if you're going to add a, a new bull or a registered cow, it doesn't have to be the best one in the herd, but it has to be better than the average of the herd, or the only thing that can happen is the quality of the whole herd goes down. And conversely, when you call out animals in November or October in South Dakota, uh, you don't get rid of the best ones, you get rid of the worst ones. Well, I think that there's lots of evidence, both in what's been saved in, well, of course there's lots, but what's been been saved and, and redeveloped in Boise and what's built certainly meets that test. It's what's being added is better than the quality of the average. And what's, what's gotten rid of, the city hall being a, 
unfortunate exception, is, is less than the quality of the average. So I think that, that that's the way you make great cities that are distinguished, is you keep building on what you have. Everybody, every new building doesn't have to be the best in town, but if it's not better than the average, you're not helping the city as a whole. For about 25 years, there have been studies about the economic impact of historic preservation. My firm has done some, others have done them, and they've nearly always been on the statewide level. Uh, and regardless of who did them, the kind of big four that have emerged, that emerged were these. Uh, downtown revitalization, uh, heritage tourism, the incremental difference in heritage tourism versus others, uh, jobs and income created by the uh, process of rehabilitation, uh, and uh, the impact of local historic districts on property values. Those are kind of the big four. A couple years ago, we did a, an analysis of the almost 30-year history of the North Carolina Main Street Program. You have a Main Street Program here in Idaho, and it deserves to grow uh, and get bigger and serve more of your communities. But Main Street, there is no form of economic development of any kind, any place in America. I don't care about downtown revitalization, historic preservation, anything. There is no program of economic development that is more cost effective than Main Street, period, period, no exception. So I don't even care if you don't like anything about old buildings. If you're about economic development, your community needs to be involved in, in Main Street. So over the lifetime of that program, two and a half billion with a B uh, investment in those uh, communities, Main Street communities, about half of that from the public sector, about the other half from the private sector. Uh, there have been uh, uh, almost 5,000 net new businesses, uh, 18,000 net new jobs in these mostly small towns uh, in North Carolina, uh, 4,500 buildings that were rehabilitated. Lifetime budget, about $12 million. And if you take the number net new jobs created against that budget, $435 a job. You know, if your state economic development director went to the legislature and say, hey, we created uh, jobs for $45,000 a job, they'd say, well, that's kind of what people are paying these days. 1% of that is what Main Street is creating jobs to. Uh, Georgia is a state that was particularly hurt in the, in the Great Recession. They had a couple of years where, in fact, their state government took in less money than the, than the year before. Uh, so it was tough, unemployment up, but all through that period, when the economy in the state was going down, every one of those years, the Georgia Main Street communities added jobs. Uh, they also added uh, net new businesses. Uh, the recession notwithstanding, in fact, there was economic growth in those Main Street communities against what was happening in the state in general. In Iowa, one of the great Main Street programs uh, uh, in the country. It's a program that costs the state about $950,000 a year for their program, so it's you know, reasonably well-funded. But it generates, the net new businesses in those Main Street communities generate $43 million a year in revenues to the state. I don't know who, if Warren Buffett doesn't have that kind of return on the investment. <laughs> so the first one is this kind of role of heritage-based uh, downtown revitalization in Main Street, of course, is the best example. The second is this issue about heritage tourism. I'm gonna to give you some data, but I have to tell you, my goal in life is to break this cycle that when you say economics and historic preservation in the same sentence, that the, the kind of default response is, oh, you must mean heritage tourism. That's an important piece, but that's far from being the whole thing, but it's an important one. Uh, in, uh, in Philadelphia, firm not ours, great uh, firm of economists who actually know what they're doing instead of us who kind of bluff our way through. Uh, they looked at the five counties surrounding Philadelphia, 
the heritage tourism in that area. 45,000 jobs, almost a billion dollars in, in earnings in those five counties. Tourists spend their money in five categories, virtually all their money in five categories. They spend their money on local transportation, on lodging, on food and beverages, on retail purchases, and on entertainment admission, uh, admissions, that kind of thing. So we looked at the heritage visitors in San Antonio versus people who went to San Antonio but didn't do any heritage stuff, didn't do any, didn't go to the Alamo, didn't do anything. In every one of those categories, the heritage visitors spent more. So, not only, so, so even with fewer of them, there's a greater economic impact because of the propensity of heritage-based visitors to have a spending pattern much greater than tourists in general. We looked in, in, uh, in Utah. Uh, and what we discovered is that that historic site that was often the magnet for them to get there only got $7 of every $100 that the visitors spent. The rest was spent on the rental car, on the gas, on the restaurants, on the shops, in the hotel. So it was the historic site that drew them there, but they weren't the beneficiary. It was the rest of the economy that was the beneficiary. It's kind of like you know, there'll be a big sale at, at Kmart for toasters for $12 or something. It's a loss leader. They're losing money on that, but that's what gets you into Kmart to buy the other stuff. Well, in some cases, the historic sites are really the loss leader. There's what drawing in so other parts of the local economy can benefit. If you just care about having local jobs, preservation is an important component of that. Uh, the state of Georgia, we did a, uh, a study a, a few years ago and looked at the numbers of jobs per million dollars worth of output that are created in Georgia. And well, the citizens of Georgia spent a gazillion dollars to attract some automobile manufacturer. That's all right, it's their money, they can do what they want. But a million dollars worth of automobile construction uh, manufacturer in the state of Georgia creates three and a half jobs in the state of Georgia and $245,000 in paycheck. New construction, build a new building in Georgia for a million dollars, 15 jobs, 616,000 in income, spend a million dollars rehabilitating a storage building, 18 jobs and 750. Now, where's the economic development in that equation? Uh, again, in Utah, we kind of made the calculation, what happens? What happens if you spend a million dollars rehabilitating a uh, storage building? 10 direct jobs, another seven and a half indirect, total of almost 850,000 in income. Beyond the million dollars spent on the building, that generates another, almost another million elsewhere in the local economy. Now, Utah, kind of like Idaho, is not a state that has a huge amount of tax rehabilitation historic preservation. Even the, what's done there creates almost 200 jobs a year, and if you thought about historic preservation as a single industry, that would be in the top 1% of all of the businesses in Utah. Then there's this issue about property values. What happens when you have a local historic district and now you have to go to some commission to get your carry your ports down, approval and stuff, blah, 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 okay. And, and what's very interesting, I'm so old, I've seen this whole evolution. And, and I come from, the, I'm not anti-real estate, I come from the real estate world. I'm, so I'm pro-development, not anti-development. But the argument at the, when, when local historic districts first were created was this. You're going to put in another layer of regulation, layers of regulation, prima facie, meaning lower property values, so that historic districts don't hurt property values. Now, with 30 years' worth of evidence, the, the, the argument is this. Those damn historic districts are going to make property values go up, and therefore we're going to have to pay more property taxes. <laughs> Same guy. Opposite conclusion. Now, I know some of you serve on preservation commissions, and I'm sorry to break your heart. But this premium is not paid for the privilege of appearing before your goofy commission. It's being paid 
for the confidence that the lunatic across the street's not going to be doing something to his property that has an adverse effect on the value. <laughs> One of the best studies on this property value thing has been, was done by a professor at University of Louisville, uh, John Gilderbloom, and he looked at this eight-year period broken down to the to the census block level and did a big fancy linear regression analysis, meaning that he sorted out every variable that would account for a property A selling for a different amount than property B. Its size, its condition, its uh, whether it have a garage, it have one bedroom or three or whatever, all of those. So the only thing left was it was in or it was not in a local historic district. And what did he find is over that uh, eight year period that the historic districts gained about 59,000 to 67,000 more uh, than, uh, than comparable properties, and those properties uh, gained about 21% in additional value because they're in those local historic districts. This is Canton, Connecticut, small town about 45 minutes northwest of uh, Hartford, the capital. Uh, the pink area is a national register district within which is a local historic district. Uh, so the whole local district is within the national register district, but again, local district has protection, national register district does not. And the ratios are about the same as they found in Philly. So in the local district, property value is up about 32%. In the, in the NR district that wasn't local, up 28%, rest of the city up 22%. So this is preservation premium that's showing up. And then in Utah, we looked at five uh, cities uh, that during this kind of up and crash. And with one exception, and I'll show you that in a minute, Every one of them, the upside was a little more, the downside less steep, recovery began uh, faster. Uh, Park City and Logan and Provo and Salt Lake. And the only exception was Ogden, which in fact has kind of a big, very low rate of home ownership and very mixed use district. It didn't perform as well, uh, but I'll come back to the compensation for that in just a minute. So those are the big four. Jobs and household income, downtown revitalization, heritage, tourism, and property so those were the big four. Here's the kind of new nine. We've now looked in about 30 cities, and every one of them, the foreclosure rate in historic districts decidedly less than in the city as a whole. This is a big deal. Millions of people lost their life savings in that real estate crash, lost their homes, went back in foreclosure. Well, if there's a variable that shows that different pattern, people want to be paying attention, for God's sake. Almost one in five single-family houses in Salt Lake faced foreclosure during that time. Uh, historic districts, barely 5%. Including Ogden, by the way, that had, the, even though the property values fell faster than the city as a whole, even they had a lower foreclosure rate than did the city as a whole. Uh, here's San Antonio, every historic district, some rich, most not, didn't matter. Foreclosure rates less in every one of them. This, doesn't, this isn't about some kind of architectural style, it is the quality and nature and character of those neighborhoods. Now, it's, we'd like to say, well, people who live in historic neighborhoods, they never get divorced, or they never get fired, or they never run the credit cards up too much. That's not what's happening. <laughs> it's it's when, when I get in financial trouble in that historic district because of this kind of latent strength of that market, I can get that property sold before it goes into that foreclosure process. So I think that's what we're seeing uh, here. Then the next one is the stability on the downside. Here is Savannah. And the uh, uh, blue line is the change in value over that 15-year period or 10-year period in Savannah. So the historic district properties outperformed the market in the up years. What happened in the down years? Well, first of all, the decline started later. It was less steep, and the recovery started faster. 
So in, in the, the kind of economic resilience that those historic neighborhoods represent. Then there's this issue of density, the D word. And I'll tell you who likes density. The city controller likes density. The transportation likes guy likes density. The planners like density. Everybody likes density except the citizens who say, I don't want density. If I wanted density, I'd move to New York. Okay, just chill for a moment. Here's the city of Raleigh. And I think Raleigh is a, is a city with lots and lots of parallels to Boise. Capital city, universe, strong university presence, very rapid, strong quality growth in the core of the city. I think there's lots of similarities. So we did a study a couple years ago on, on, uh, in Raleigh on preservation, and we looked at density. At the beginning of the 20th century, the density in, in Raleigh was almost 8,000 people per square mile. So now it's about 2,500 people. Uh, per uh, square mile in the, the local historic districts have a density of, of twice as much. Now here's what's happened. Some of you maybe are participating. There's things called visual preference surveys. So you get a group of people in a room and you're sitting and you'll be trying to talk about density. And they say, yeah, we don't want that density. Then you'll show them pictures of neighborhoods. And invariably, it doesn't mean they necessarily want to live in that neighborhood, but say, which neighborhoods do you like? Oh, those historic neighborhoods, that's the kind of stuff we want. Well, lo and behold, those are the most dense. That is the density, but it's a density at a human scale, so people like it. They not only don't fight it, they like it. The real estate community in New York is saying, you know, we've got a, a, a city that's fixed in boundaries. Population is growing, so the only thing we can do is go up. So we've got to build these bazillion story skyscrapers. Okay, all right, understand. True, absolutely true. And so we looked at, I think there's been 21 skyscrapers, residential skyscrapers over 500 meters built since uh, 2001. So they, they added density a lot. Started at uh, 97.18 uh, people, uh, 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 people per square mile, and it goes up to 105,000. So they were right. They added density. But the historic districts already had density of 144,000 per square mile. They need to add density. But something like 3%, 3.5% of all of the lots in the city of New York are under the purview of the, of the Preservation Commission. Yeah, add density, but for God's sake, don't be adding it in the place. And, and the real estate community is saying, we have to get rid of the historic districts because they're killing our affordable housing, they're killing our density. But, you idiots, that's where the density is. Look other places. In fact, that's true in all five boroughs of, uh, of uh, New York. Higher density in the historic districts. This issue of walkability. You probably all know, but you can today, there's a thing called walkscore.com. So we looked at walk scores in San Antonio. Mission District, again, this kind of too big district, frankly, lower. Every other historic district, national and local, in San Antonio had a higher walk score than did the city as a whole. One of the reasons there's this preservation premium is those historic neighborhoods are walkable, and people are paying for lots of things, but this walkability is one of them. Then this issue about the knowledge and creative industries. There's a concept in kind of economic analysis called revealed preference, in that we could say right now, I could, we could have a little poll. How many of you prefer vanilla ice cream? Raise your hands. And how many of you prefer chocolate ice cream? And that, raise your hand. So that's just a direct survey. But we could do it a different way. We could have a waiter come in with a tray with both chocolate and vanilla, and you'd take one. And then we know as well, because that's your revealed preference, how you acted indicates your preference. Also, a lot of the work we do is this kind of revealed preference. What are people doing? Well, what are they doing? These people in those knowledge and creative industries are choosing to be in historic neighborhoods. That's one of my favorites, actually. It's kind of a geeky statistic. Uh, but this issue of business births and deaths. 
one of the measurements that the Department of Commerce keeps every year is how many businesses open, how many closed. And of course, to have a growing economy, you have to have more businesses opening than closing. Uh, and the ratio over the long term tends to be something between 1.1 and 1.2 to 1, meaning 11 or 12 businesses opening for every 10 that close. So here's what happened nationally uh, during the recession. So you start out in 2, 4, 5, and 6, and you see the, the average of, of slightly over 1, 1.2, 1.3, so that's kind of normal. The recession started at the end of 2007. You see that 2007 starting to dip down, and then 2008, 2009, 2010, 2011, in fact, more businesses closed than open. So that's when we were in the depth of the recession. Now, we looked at Michigan, New Mexico, and North Carolina. Now, think about those are very different states. North Carolina, kind of prosperous economy. Michigan, you know, kind of has struggles. New Mexico, in fact, is quite a, outside of Albuquerque and Santa Fe, quite a port. It didn't matter. In every one of those cases, through the depth of the recession, they were opening more businesses than were closing. That's a big deal. More than was happening in the nation, more than was happening in the rest of the state, they in fact were surviving and prospering against the kind of overall national trend. The issue about small businesses and startup businesses I think is a real important indicator of the health of the whole economy. 3.4% of the lots in uh, New York are in historic districts. 8% of the private sector jobs, but small jobs at small firms, meaning uh, firms less than 20 people. Uh, small startup, uh, startup firms, young firms, all of them have a greater likelihood to be in historic districts than the kind of job uh, pattern in general. I happen to believe that if we're going to have healthy cities, that we need at the neighborhood level human beings that mirror the breadth of the citizens of that city in, uh, in age, in income, in ethnicity, in race. I think that healthy neighborhoods are ones that kind of reflect the whole city. Those of us beyond the preservation field say that preservation is kind of fine, I guess, but for saving the mansions of rich, dead, white guys. Well, that's not what preservation is anymore at all. It really is this reflection of the breadth of who we are as a, as a country. Then there's this issue of the environment. There was an uh, uh, investment banker in Baltimore who had done some of this analysis before. He teamed up with an environmental economist, and they looked at, at the kind of economic or environmental impact of making preservation decisions. And their model was this. Let's say that we have a need for a 50,000 square foot warehouse. And our options are we can take an existing 50,000 square foot storage building and fix it up, do whatever we need to to have use for our, whatever our warehouse needs are, or we can go to the edge of town and build a new warehouse for 50,000 square feet. In the end, we have a building that will meet its function. That doesn't matter. But what are the environmental differences of making those decisions? And here you can find them. 20 to 40 percent reduction of vehicle miles traveled, reduction in CO2 emissions, uh, saved uh, CO2 of equivalent to 22,000 gallons of gasoline, embodied energy, which is the energy that was required to put that wall together originally, of um, 55,000 million uh, BTUs, saved five acres of greenfield development, less construction debris in the landfill by 2,500 tons, and infrastructure investment saved dollars to $800,000. I'm telling you, the Tea Party and the Sierra Club ought to be holding hands, leading the preservation parade. <laughs> uh, they, 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 they're the ones that are kind of the beneficiaries. Uh, one of the good things that the National Trust has done in the last few years is established a kind of research center called the Preservation Green Labs, and they did some very good peer-reviewed analysis of ver variety of building typologies around the country. Uh, and here's what they found. You know, everybody talks about, oh, we need to have the lead 
four-star blah 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 green gizmo building built we're going to be responsible well it takes 10 to 80 years of the most energy efficient building to make up for the energy cost of building the damn thing and uh, building reuse and almost every alternative was in fact more efficient more energy efficient in terms of rehabilitating existing buildings than building the kind of green gizmo new building uh, we did a study in utah and we hired robert young who's at the university of, Inge of uh, Utah and is an engineering geek guy. So he did this calculation of, of materials flow. That if you build something, you gotta get something out of the ground or from the forest, you have to turn that raw material into a building material, you have to transport it to where the building's being built, incorporate it into the building, and then you use it for 30 or 40 or 50 or 80 years, and then something happens, you tear it down, you throw it away, you re whatever, but there's this life cycle, and you model it this way. Let's say that we have three alternatives. We can take an historic house, modest size, 23, 2400 square feet, and we can retrofit it so it has all the energy efficient systems in it, so it's very energy efficient. Or we can go to the edge of town uh, and build a new building, not a McMansion, and uh, just a similar size, small, relatively small house at the edge of town. Or, and this was a surprise to me, and it may have applicability here in, in Boise, or we can tear down the existing building and build a new one on that site. Lo and behold, the most expensive option, environmentally, in terms of materials flows, was tearing down and throwing away the historic building and rebuilding that place. The next most was going off the edge and doing it. By, by an order of five orders of magnitude, the least consumptive was to say, let's rehabilitate the existing historic building. I don't care if you like the character of an old building. If you care about the environment, we ought to be paying attention. They have a tax credit in Utah that applies to uh, houses. People can rehabilitate the historic house, they get tax credit. And so we looked at all of those houses that have been rehabilitated using the state tax credit and calculated their average size. Every time that they chose to rehabilitate instead of tear down and throw away, that made a difference of 116 tons of stuff that went into the landfill. Something between a quarter and a third of everything that goes to landfill is from construction debris. There is not a solid waste landfill in America that the tipping fees pay for its operational cost and its capital cost over its lifetime. None of them. Meaning, every time somebody goes and dumps stuff in the landfill, the rest of us are subsidizing that throwing away material. When cities decline in population and then the population begins to grow again, where does that growth take place? I live in Washington, D.C., but every Tuesday in the spring, I go up to Philly and teach a class for three hours. But I remember when the census came out, and the big headlines were finally turned the corner, that we've been losing population in Philadelphia for 50 years, and finally we're starting to grow. It's only 8,500 people, but we've turned the corner. Except they didn't. The historic districts in Philadelphia grew by 12,000 people. The rest of the city is still losing people. Here is Boston. It kind of turned the corner a decade earlier, but with the same pattern, that where their growth took place was disproportionately in the historic district. So if you want to grow back, for God's sake, don't be getting rid of the neighborhoods that are the place where people want to come. Thank you very much. <laughs>